from the studio of KPSU. Portland, in association with the Department of History at Portland State University, this is Beyond Footnotes. Join us as we explore public, local, and world history through discussions with professors, authors, fellow students, and alumni, as well as local historians. Today, we have a special episode in store for you. It's Halloween historian style. I'm your new host, Emily, and thanks for listening in today. October is a month full of frights, horrors, horror movies, vampires, monsters, curses, demons, magic, and witches, all of whom have been hunted and persecuted in beloved films and novels for decades, even centuries. But what about the real-life hunts and persecution of alleged witches in the pre-modern era? The witch hunts, while they may have been more about listening to various and numerous rumors and observing odd or abnormal behavior rather than chasing down with pitchforks and torches, were still brutal, terrifying, and based on fear rather than fact. With no proof, anyone could be accused, tortured, tried, and burned at the stake, and and no one, not man, woman, child, young or old, was safe. Joining us today to try and help answer some of these questions is Dr. Jennifer D. Selwyn, an adjunct history professor here at Portland State. Dr. Selwyn received her Ph.D. in history from the University of California, Davis. She specializes in the early modern era, teaching the Renaissance and Reformation, and gender-related medieval history. She also teaches one very unique class in particular, the witch hunt in pre-modern Europe. Dr. Selwyn, thank you for joining us today. Hello, Emily. Thank you for having me. Let's start with a simple question. Were there people of the pre-modern era that practiced witchcraft, or what we'll refer to as Maleficia? So, as far as we know, there's no concrete evidence of the practice of the Maleficia, or what we might call harmful magic, uh, much less the idea of people belonging to organized satanic cults, which was really the crime that lay at the heart of the panic that seized both commoners and uh, secular and judicial elites in the 16th and 17th centuries, which was the period of the height of the witch hunts. Um, And one of the problems that we have as historians is that we're really not in a position to prove the existence of either of those kinds of practices, either harmful magic or the association uh, with the devil, because how would we do so? Of course, as you know, since this is a historian's podcast, we historians rely on written documents, and we simply don't have written documentation that could give evidence to the practice uh, of Maleficia. Now, there definitely were people who claimed to have practiced witch hunt, uh, witchcraft or Maleficia, and this was typically uh, done through confessions uh, that were conducted under torture or through the threat of more torture, right? So you have these people then who are tortured and confessed to being witches. So, of course, we have to look on those claims with a great deal of cynicism. And, of course, we also have other people who claim that the so-called witch uh, practices evil magic upon them or maybe upon their neighbors or upon their livestock. But again, as, as historians, we have to look at, uh, at concrete evidence, and we simply really don't have the kind of evidence uh, that we would want to have to say that harmful magic that actually had any effects in the world was practiced. So, um, yeah, go sorry, ahead. <laughs> aside from these uh, repenting citizens or citizens... Um, tortured into a confession, was anyone ever found not guilty and released before any harm came to them? Sure. Um, We do have many cases of individuals who declared their innocence and were released. And and one thing to point out here 
is when we talk about the witch hunts in Europe in the early modern period, we need to be a little bit more specific. In fact, we need to be a lot more specific. Um, although the witch trials took place uh, all over Europe uh, to a larger, uh, greater or lesser degree in the early modern period, um, there were certain areas of Europe where they were much more common and where we also see more than the occasional prosecution of an individual so-called witch and where we actually can talk about panics. Um, and there are also some places where the judicial system was just very different. England is a good example of that. Um, in England, for example, we find what we typically find in places where uh, there are fewer witch trials and where we have more evidence of witches that are acquitted, and that is you have a central government, you have a centralized legal system, and in England in particular, you have a jury system. And in these kinds of, uh, uh, of governmental and judicial systems, uh, we not only tend to have fewer witch trials, uh, but we also have larger numbers of, acquit of, 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 of victims or uh, suspects in the witch, witch trials acquitted. I mean, it's estimated, for example, in England, uh, that in the second half of the 16th century, just about 23% uh, of accused witches were found guilty, right? So that, that tells us that the vast majority of those who accused as witches in England uh, were, were ultimately acquitted. But even in places like France, um, which, by the way, was also much more politically centralized in, uh, in the 16th century, even there, where you have a lot more witch trials uh, in comparison to England, you start to see changes in the late 16th and early 17th centuries where the central courts in Paris, what are called the Parlement, uh, Parlement of Paris, start to hear appeals from witches. Uh, and um, and they begin to put pressure on local officials whom they see as kind of overzealous in prosecuting witches, and actually start to threaten those local officials um, that if they if the case is overturned in Paris, that those officials will be uh, punished in some way for judicial abuses. So all of this is really to say that we do have a number of uh, individuals who are acquitted, and that increasingly, especially in certain jurisdictions. Um, which hunting becomes more problematic for local officials to, per, to uh, pursue. Speaking of all these um, judicial and governmental changes, can you briefly explain the difference in thinking between peasants and upper class or nobility and clergy in regard to Malefice? Sure. So, I mean, I think one thing to think about is that um, which, witchcraft as such, or what is perceived to be witchcraft, um, or certainly the practice of magic, is something that's existed, you know, long into the past, and certainly throughout medieval Europe. People who practiced magic, whether they were learned uh, magi that are usually men, or whether they were commoners, often women, people, for example, who practice things like love magic, um, these are individuals who are sought out after by commoners, by peasants, by urban commoners, and sometimes by elite. So in that sense, um, we have this idea of magic, which is not completely negative in the popular imagination, right? Um, however, we also have anxiety about those that might practice harmful magic, or what we've called malefica. And so we do find historically that certain individuals are seen to be practicing harmful magic. We might call them witches. And, um, and throughout the Middle Ages, you have incidents where those individuals are targeted for some kind of violence or some kind of uh, punishment from the population. But what really changes in the late medieval period, and especially in the beginning of the, of the 16th century, as we begin to have uh, an increase in these witch trials, is that you have 
elites, both uh, clerical elites, that is members of the clergy, but also secular elites, those who work in the courts, um, that begin to rely upon profiles of so-called witches. We might want to talk about it as a kind of witch discourse, right? So they tell you, what does a witch look like? Um, what does she do? You know, how does she consort with the devil? Um, and we begin to have, for example, these kinds of uh, witch manuals or witch hunting manuals, like the most infamous, uh, the Malleus Maleficarum in the late 15th century. And so what begins to happen then is that uh, where you may have in the past had episodes of the population demanding punishment for uh, so-called witches practicing harmful magic, you now introduce these learned ideas um, about satanic cults, about witches being in league with the devil. Uh, there's often a sexual element to this because most so-called witches are female, and this is important because most magicians, are, are learned magicians, are seen as male, um, you need these witches to be passive in some way. And so they're often seen as being uh, kind of the passive accomplices of the devil, if you will. Um, and, and once you have these elites coming into play, they then take accusations from the peasantry or from urban commoners, uh, and they're able to convince the legal officials to, uh, to prosecute these individuals. And what that means is that the court system becomes involved. So I guess what I'm really trying to say is you have the popular accusations, which are longstanding, but what you needed is for the judicial system to suddenly become interested. Again, not everywhere in Europe and not even in all, uh, in, in all parts of certain countries where many of the trials take place, but in particular locales and because of the zealotry of particular judicial authorities, uh, and you have the ability then for these kinds of individuals to be prosecuted uh, on the on the accusation by the by the people. Does that make sense? So there's a sort of a, a, um, a demand from below, but it's only possibly going to be carried out uh, by the judicial officials from above. And the one piece that I just absolutely have to add here that I think is critical is the is the fact that you have a revival of Roman law in the late Middle Ages, so that by mm. the 15th century. Again, mostly on co in continental Europe, you don't have this present in England. Um, you have the application of torture to extract confessions. Mm -hmm. You need to prosecute people in two ways. You either need eyewitnesses, which in the case of witchcraft is virtually impossible to have, or you need a confession. And that and those confessions can be extracted through the use of torture. Without those things, and certainly also without the fact that People can accuse so-called uh, witches without coming forward, so the, the, the suspect doesn't know her accuser. Uh, without this kind of confluence of factors, I don't think you would have had uh, witch hunting at all. So I know you said that there was evidence that people might have been practicing witchcraft, whether it was um, harmful or not. But uh, there's a wonderful book by Brian P. Levesque called The Witch Hunt in Early Modern Europe. Um, mm -hmm. In it, there's an intriguing passage where he states that the power is very much the magician's power, which they use to produce readily observable empirical results in the world. The assumption of magicians is that if they practice their art correctly, it will automatically bring about the desired result. If they fail, they conclude that they have not performed their art properly. In this description, it sort of makes magicians or witches sound more like scientists, um, 
than something fantastical. Was it possible that some of these people were practicing some sort of science that people had not yet accepted or come to fully understand? I mean, you never know. It's also it's always possible. Uh, I, I mean, I think, again, we come back to the, the question of how do historians establish, uh, you know, historical reality? Uh, and I think we do that through the availability of sources. And we just don't have evidence for this sort of thing. Um, I think what's much more likely is that magic was widely understood across European history to be functional. That is, it, it could work, right? Or people believed it worked. Mm -hmm. And there was also this strong idea that those who practiced the magical arts were sought after for their skills, something I had talked about a few minutes ago. Yeah. And by the way, I never said that I thought that people practice magic in an effective way. I mean, I, again, we can't prove it one way or the other. But I think we can say that people certainly believed that magicians had something to offer them, and they were willing to pay money for that. Of course, you know, some of these folks were probably charlatans, or we would call them scam artists today. Yeah. Um, but certainly there were people who were learned practitioners of magic, who, uh, who may also have been what we would today call scientists. In the early modern period, they were known as uh, natural philosophers. We know, for example, and we've learned in the last couple decades from some wonderful research by historians of science, that no less brilliant scientific minds than Sir Isaac Newton was obsessed with alchemy, right, with the turning of base metals into gold. So mm -hmm. that's certainly a kind of magic we could talk about, yeah. not necessarily witchcraft, but certainly practice of learned magic. Um, so I think, you know, there's, there aren't these clear boundaries we have today between magic and science or natural philosophy. Uh, so that was certainly the case in the early modern period. Um, so we can say that perhaps there were people who thought they were practicing magic and, and certainly people who believed that that magic was, uh, was beneficial and that, that it was being practiced correctly. Again, we can't prove it either way because mm -hmm. we have no way to, to show that magic, in fact, is effective in the world. At least I don't believe we can prove that. Um, but I think the, the more important point for us is that the kind of magic that witches were accused of practicing, right, we've talked about Maleficia, mm -hmm. um, and especially this idea of the conspiracy that witches were practicing this Maleficia in an organized conspiracy in league with the devil, right, Satanism, as we would call it today, mm -hmm. um, was something that wasn't seen as beneficial in any sense, right? And it was, in fact, seen as dire, you know, as a dire practice that was threatening to Christian society, Christian-dominated Europe, right? So... One of the paradoxes that I kind of want us to come back to is that the people who are believed to practice magic in general, certainly learned magic, were virtually all men, right? So we have the yeah. image of the magi, or the magi uh, whereas witches, as we know, 85% in most of Europe, uh, were women, and they were typically poor and illiterate women, right? So these were not individuals who would have been respected in early modern society for their expertise, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas the the men would have been. So we have to kind of tease out this paradox that the image of the magician was predominantly a learned man, and to the witch is predominantly uh, probably an illiterate peasant or poor woman uh, who's in league with the devil. And these are obviously two very different kinds of people. So well, maybe we're talking about something very different is my point. Yeah. Um, and so... I was reading that um, these kind of instances, these um, surges of persecution were kind of random um, and in different areas. Was there in regard to the difference between the magicians or the 
magi, the male witches, and then these poor female witches, was there something going on socially or religiously that they would have needed to kind of, um, in a way, get rid of these women? Were they causing a problem? Right. Well, so now, again, that's a, that's a really complex question, and I know we, we, we don't have tons of time, but I think, you know, there are some things going on. I mean, I think it's, it's true that um, we don't always have clear-cut patterns, but I think we can point to some kinds of larger, uh, larger realities that, that kind of come together in, uh, in, and, and, and set the stage, if you will, for the, the witch hunts. I've already talked about the revival of Roman law. That's so important mm-hmm. because that allows torture. It allows, uh, you know, it allows... Um, the victims to not know their accusers and certainly allows the practice of torture, which meant that you could extract confessions, you could get uh, those suspects to name names, which after all is the way that these panics actually happened. Um, But we also know that there's a variety of important religious changes. It's no accident that the witch hunts uh, emerge in the 15th century and they really take off in the 16th and 17th centuries, which is a time of intense religious anxiety, right? Mm -hmm. You've got the Protestant Reformation in the early 16th century. You've got religious wars all across uh, Europe, but particularly in Central Europe and France in the latter half of the 16th century. You have tremendous socioeconomic changes going on. You also, importantly, have, in the late 16th and early 17th centuries, a rise in the number of unmarried women. I think this demographic change is something we should pay attention to because, again, the the anxiety that's produced by uh, large numbers of uh, what early modern folk would see as unmastered women, right, women who aren't uh, under the legal jurisdiction of husbands or fathers, Mm -hmm. uh, this could all kind of contribute to this atmosphere of anxiety. So I think all of those factors uh, are certainly important to think about. That's very interesting. Um, Unfortunately, due to some technical difficulties this morning, um, I think that's about all the time we have for today. But before we go, Dr. Sowen, are you a fan of Halloween? I am a fan of Halloween. Um, What would be your favorite Halloween movie or possibly your favorite Halloween candy? Oh, it's tr- it's tough to talk about Halloween movies. I mean, probably the you know the the original Halloween is about one of the scariest movies you can imagine, and I haven't gone to see the new one, but I'm kind of curious about it. Maybe I'm too old to be so scared anymore in a, in a movie, or rather that I I'm too old to want to put myself through that. <laughs> uh, as far as Halloween candy, I'd have to I'd have to stick with the the sweet tarts, especially the large ones that they don't make anymore. Those oh, were the best. Yeah. I liked the, I think there were some chewy ones that they used to have, the sweet tarts. Yeah, they, they still have some small ones left, but they got rid of the big ones. I guess that they they, uh, they weren't so safe for kids. For oh. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. S- Dr. Selwyn. Thank you. Beyond Footnotes is produced by students of the PSU Department of History and is recorded in the studio of KPSU. You can find information about this episode on our show page at kpsu.org slash beyondfootnotes and on SoundCloud. We are always interested to know what you guys think about the show. Please feel free to contact the Beyond Footnotes team on Facebook, Twitter, or email at beyondfootnotes at gmail.com with any comments, questions, or suggestions concerning the podcast. For previous episodes and extended content, 
check out kpsu.org slash beyondfootnotes or SoundCloud. And don't forget to share. Tell a friend, subscribe, rate, and follow the show on Facebook or Twitter. If you're interested in getting involved with Beyond Footnotes, please email us.